0: Feel Good Hemp is the first and only brand to offer high-quality CBD oil products alongside a free platform that offers proven self-help and self-healing techniques, all to help you feel good naturally. Feel Good Hemp was started by Noah and his wife, Danielle, after they used hemp oil and other techniques to save Noah's father from a terminal cancer diagnosis. Now, I heard this story firsthand when I interviewed Noah. It's a real good one, and it's probably the most heartfelt and compelling story I've ever heard about why someone started a CBD company. So Feel Good Hemp is more than just a great place to buy CBD products. It's actually a community of like-minded souls committed to feeling good and doing good. So use coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout to save a third or 33% site-wide on your first purchase. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform. He's the director of the Centre for Personalised Immunology. This is at Australian National University. So, Matt, thanks for coming. I appreciate it.
2: Uh, Thanks, Richard. Uh, Nice to be here. If you would, tell me about your research. What are
0: you working on right now?
2: Well, look, Richard, we're interested in understanding the mechanisms of immune-mediated diseases, which is a very broad group of diseases. One of the approaches that we've been taking, really been concentrating on for a number of years, is to investigate rare immune diseases to try and understand the genetic basis of those rare immune diseases. Um, And once we can try and get some insights into the genetic basis of those diseases, it often gives us access to how the immune system is going wrong, start to dissect the biochemistry and the cellular mechanisms and get to the root of the problem.
0: Um, are these autoimmune diseases or is that a subset of immune mediated disease?
2: Well, autoimmune diseases are a, are a subset. We can think about immune diseases in several categories. So, certainly, autoimmune diseases, a large group, overall affect 3% of the population or so. It's a cluster of about 80 diseases, and some are rare and some are more common. So, there's that category. There's another category of diseases where the immune response is suboptimal or defective in some way. And this leaves people susceptible to infections, unusually susceptible to infections. And this category is called immune deficiency. Uh, And then there are a group of disorders which are due to an abnormal immune response to environmental stimuli. Allergies are an example of this where... An otherwise innocuous environmental antigen is able to stimulate an immune response but the immune response is is excessively vigorous or the wrong type of response and that results in pathology so that's the third category of diseases called hypersensitivity disorders so these don't always occur in isolation sometimes people have more than one category and and therefore sometimes when we get insights into one type of disease that gives us avenues for investigating others.
0: And what will be the focus of our talk today? There's a particular condition. I just wanted you to elucidate the name and everything.
2: Yeah, yeah, so my group works predominantly on immune deficiency diseases, that category of diseases, but our center, the Center for Personalized Immunology, looks at both autoimmune diseases and immune deficiency diseases.
0: Okay, and what are the ones that you're looking at right now in particular?
2: Uh, Well, there are a group of rare diseases that that arise as a result of genetic variants in a very important transcriptional pathway called NF-kappa B. And so these are a spectrum of disorders that occur in individuals that inherited genetic variants in these genes that are part of this pathway.
0: Oh, what's the common name for the uh, rare genetic? disease or diseases that you're working on?
2: Oh, well, some of these are so rare that they don't really have a common name. So, you know, we just refer to these as, uh, as immune deficiency, primary immune deficiency uh, disorders.
0: Okay. What are the characteristics, like, you know, let's say the most prominent ones that you're working on, what are some of the characteristics of the diseases? And then, you know, what are the names that are associated? Not the extreme yeah. rare ones, but yeah. um, and then we'll, you know, we'll get into questions based on those.
2: Yeah. Well, patients typically present with recurrent infections as a result of problems with their ability to mount a normal immune response. And sometimes, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, and it seems somewhat paradoxical, they also develop features of autoimmunity. So in one particular syndrome, they develop autoimmune disease, which leads to alopecia. They can develop autoimmune disease of the pituitary gland and sometimes other autoimmune diseases as well. Now, these sorts of autoimmune diseases occur in other contexts, but they occur specifically in this rare single gene disorder. And this exemplifies how studying a single gene disorder can give us some insights into much more common diseases. And you mentioned at the outset, your interest in hyper-IgE syndrome or Job syndrome. Oh, J-O-B, like the book of Job, Job syndrome? Exactly, exactly, which was, okay. you know, we've got that name because of the very unfortunate manifestations of recurrent boils or abscesses of the skin, which is one feature of that disorder. That's another form of primary immune deficiency disease, which is a useful example as well of how we can get significant insights into the way the immune system works from studying another form of rare immune deficiency disorder.
0: So what are the primary issues when someone has this hyper-IgE? Like what happens to them and what age? You know, let's go through mm. the symptomology first and then the underlying yeah. reasons,
2: if any. Yeah. So people with hyper-IgE syndrome usually present in childhood and they can present with pneumonia. And it's usually a bacterial pneumonia caused by Staphylococcus aureus. So a relatively common bacteria, but an unusual cause of pneumonia. And then one of the clues to the fact that the person might be suffering with an immune deficiency is that the infections are recurrent, difficult to treat and recurrent. So staphylococcus aureus infections of the chest, infections of the skin with the same organisms, and then recurrent bouts of candidiasis or thrush affecting the mouth and the fingernails sometimes the esophagus and elsewhere in the gastrointestinal tract. So it's a very unpleasant disorder for these poor patients and also, you know, carries a significant risk of long-term lung damage as a result of the recurrent pneumonia.
0: So what is going wrong at the genetic level or epigenetic level? What's happening? is Are there proteins that are not being made properly or malformed? Or, you know, what's happening to cause these issues?
2: Yeah. So this was a mystery for a long time. The syndrome was first identified in the 1960s. And then an additional feature was identified through laboratory, just diagnostic laboratory analysis of these patients. They were found to have high levels of IgE, which is a class of immunoglobulin. We have five classes of immunoglobulin. Their levels were, The levels of IgE in these patients were extraordinarily high. Hence the name, hyper-IgE syndrome, which is the other name besides Job's syndrome. So those were the things that were recognised for quite a while. And then about 20 years ago, significant progress was made and the genetic basis was identified. It was determined that this syndrome resulted from mutations in a gene called STAT3. Now, STAT3 is a signalling and transcription molecule that's important for regulating various aspects of immunity. But even once that mutation was identified, it wasn't completely clear, wasn't immediately obvious uh, how mutations in that gene could cause such a complex syndrome. But within a couple of years, several groups, including ours, were able to identify the cellular problem in the immune system that was conferred by these mutations in STAT3. And that was a deficiency of a subset of T cells called Th17 cells. And so these individuals have a significant deficiency of this subset and that proved how important this subset is in mediating body's defenses against this narrow spectrum of pigeons, including Candida and Staphylococcus aureus, which are the dominant infections that are occurring in these patients. So, so cool. looking- quick, quick,
0: quick question here. Um- is this just a heightened immune response to everything, or is it selective in what the immune response is, is heightened to? And if so, what is the, you know, what are the specifics of it?
2: No, on the contrary, it's a deficient immune response. So the, the problem is the failure to generate a competent immune response to these microbes, particularly Candida and Staphylococcus aureus. And it's a failure, specific failure to generate a subset of T cells, which is normally the key uh, component of the immune response to those pathogens.
0: So is it a um, a reduced response or in some cases zero zero response? Is it ever at the point where there's no response?
2: No, it's a reduced response because this is uh, what's called autosomal dominant disorder. So individuals have a mutation in one of two copies of STAT3. So so normally the STAT3 protein is, is encoded by two STAT3 genes, one on each chromosome. But in these individuals, they only have one good copy of that gene. So effectively, they're only making half the normal amount of normal STAT3. But STAT3 works by forming dimers, that is, two STAT3 proteins bind in a complex. And so if you only have one normal copy, then you can see that you'll only have a quarter of the normal dimers. And so, effectively, they have—they're running on 25% of the normal amount of STAT3 dimers, and that's enough to cause these fairly catastrophic changes in their immune system.
0: So, when you say there's an under response, what does that look like? Is there just not enough of these specialized T cells to address, you know, Candida, for instance, or is it that um, the T cells are unable to take action in a certain way? Like, you know, how how would you characterize the under response?
2: Well. When we're our immune system is set up, you know, on a, on a just in case basis, we have this tremendous diversity within our immune system to so that the immune system has components that can recognize any pathogen that we come in contact with. So that's the case for all of our T cells. And it's the same for all of our B cells. But we can just concentrate on T cells for a moment. Uh, so we have billions of different T cell specificities in what's called our naive T-cell repertoire. But because of this enormous diversity, the number of cells which are specific for any pathogen in the naive repertoire are very small and not really enough to mount an effective immune response. So when we come in contact with a bug for the first time, those those rare naive T-cells that are able to mount an immune response get activated and they proliferate, they expand. So we start to generate a meaningful population of cells And once that meaningful population of cells is generated, they also differentiate to acquire specific functions. And that enables them to tailor the response to the specific pathogen. So in this case, what's meant to happen when uh, we come in contact with the candida yeast or staph aureus is that the T cells that are responding proliferate and then they differentiate to become these TH17 effectors. But because of the mutation in STAT3, that differentiation process doesn't occur. So they're left without that component, which appears to have evolved under the selective pressure of these pathogens.
0: Supplementing with hemp CBD products is one of the best things you can do for your overall wellness or to improve conditions like chronic pain, sleep issues, anxiety or depression, or other conditions related to inflammation. Feel Good Hemp offers high-quality CBD oil products alongside a free platform of proven self-help and self-healing techniques, all to help you feel good naturally. They're offering our listeners a very generous 33% off their first purchase. Use the coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout, and you'll save 33%. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform. Well, from what I've learned, let's say people with peanut allergies, I know this is different, but they're given like minute, super minute amounts of peanut, you know, every day to get them used to and accustomed to it. So they don't have an overreaction. Could something similar be done where a tiny amount of candida and staph aureus, et cetera, are, you know, given to the patient and they're exposed to it so they can build up more of a response? Has that been tried?
2: No, it hasn't. It hasn't been tried, but You know, unfortunately, that's unlikely to work. So with peanut allergy and all allergies, what we think is going on is that hypersensitivity disorders. So it's like the flip side to what we're dealing with here in Job's syndrome, where specific components of the immune system are overactive. They're generating an overabundant response to what is, after all, a very innocuous stimulus. You know, peanuts don't have any inherent... (laughs) danger for us if we're not allergic so mounting an immune response is inappropriate and so you're right under those under some circumstances allergen immunotherapy is highly effective but what's actually what's thought to be happening in allergen immunotherapy is that the nature of the immune response that's being mounted to the peanut for example or the or the grass pollen is changed so Uh, So this is the important point that the immune system, you know, a normal immune response depends on both quantity and quality. And so immunotherapy is changing the quality of the immune response to to adjust the nature of the effector response rather than necessarily silencing it. Now in Job's syndrome, you know, that, that just won't work. One The problem is a deficiency, a fundamental deficiency. And the second problem is that this is genetically conferred. So there is, you know, there's a deficiency of a protein and no amount of environmental manipulation can lead to production of normal amounts of that uh, deficient protein.
0: Well, is there a way to, you know, when someone is not exposed to, you know, these pathogens, is there a way to get them to respond a little bit, make some of the protein and somehow culture it and then when they have an episode where they are exposed to Candida or some other insult, they're given back their own proteins and therefore there's enough to fight off an infection when it's in an acute stage.
2: Mm. Well, in this case, it's difficult to do that because of where the protein is located in the cell and, and the nature of its, of its response. But that, the, the approach that you've just mentioned, uh, Richard, it has been used in other forms of immune deficiency. So sometimes replacing the missing protein the protein that's deficient as a result of the genetic variant um, has been a successful strategy
0: oh uh, okay i mean if you were able to wave a magic wand and get a therapy tried out immediately that you think would what do you think would have the highest likelihood of working and why what would be the mechanism
2: well in a condition like job syndrome you know obviously a lot of people have given a lot of thought to how to how to approach therapy. And at the moment, treatment for these patients depends on prompt use of antibiotics and other and antifungal agents to treat the existing infections. And then consideration has been given to replacing the missing components. Now, as I said, just replacing the deficient STAT3 is not really practical for a number of reasons. The next thing that's considered in patients with various forms of immune deficiency is whether replacing bone marrow would be useful so doing a hemopoietic stem cell transplant so that the cells of the immune system are replaced someone else's cells and those and that might correct the defect
0: yeah it seems a lot more radical than trying to build up reserves and you know autosomalia wherever you want to put it giving them back to the person at the right time when they need it
2: well yes and no I mean if um, for the conditions where pl- protein replacement, has been possible for genetic disorders where protein replacement is used. It's highly effective, but it usually requires regular injections of that protein. So that's a lifelong therapy because most mm. of the proteins are, are cleared or used relatively quickly. Whereas a stem cell transplant, in cases where it is applicable and if successful, is curative. Now, oh, the stem other. cell report- transplants
0: have, have literally been long term curative?
2: Well, for for STEM for hyper IgE syndrome, the situation is more complicated because the STAT-3 gene is expressed in many different cells and not just the cells of not just the blood cells. So stem cell transplant has been tried in a few instances of hyper IgE syndrome, and it hasn't been tremendously successful. But in other forms of primary immune deficiency, uh, stem cell transplant can be curative where the gene acts primarily within the, just in cells of the, in the blood cells, the cells of the immune system, then it can be highly successful.
0: Person that's immune competent, if they get exposed to Candida, I mean, I've heard of people getting yeast infections and other kinds of, you know, overgrowth and inflammations. like, what's the mechanism in a regular person and why would these infections take hold versus mm-hmm. someone that has this issue?
2: Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question. and. It, illustrates how you know understanding more about these rare disorders gives us insights into the normal immune response. So what the hyper-IgE or Job syndrome taught us was the absolute critical nature of this Th17 response for normal candida responses. And that was backed up by subsequent discoveries in other patients with rare disorders where they were predisposed to recurrent candida infections, where they were found to have deficiencies of this th 17 subset as well arising from different mechanisms and so in a normal person a th 17 response on in the mucosa of the mouth and the esophagus is really the crucial component of the immune or a crucial component of the immune response that prevents normally prevents that um, infection from taking hold uh, if your immune system is um, is depleted, even if you don't have a genetic predisposition, if your immune system is suppressed for any reason, uh, you know, for people who receive corticosteroids or immune suppressants for another reason, often they develop a complication of candida, but then that goes away once their immunosuppression is reduced or ceased.
0: Hmm, okay. So are there any clues from healthy people on how to fight an infection like this or not really?
2: Well, yeah, the, the most important clues come from, the, from understanding those people who have heightened susceptibility, and that tells us about what's going on under normal circumstances to help yeah. fight infections. And that's, you know, the overall that's sort of our strategy here for understanding the mechanisms of rare immune disorders we get because the immune system is so complex. I think the other lesson from the hyper-IgE syndrome is the specificity of different components of the immune system to particular pathogens. There are a large number of pathogens that humans are exposed to and different components of the immune system appear to be adaptations for defending us against different sorts of pathogens. And that's really been proven by characterising many different types of immune deficiency and seeing how different defects in the immune system predisposed to different types of pathogens
0: what are the factors that make a normal healthy person predisposed to have problems with candida or you know other organisms like that uh well it's you
2: know it's it's true that um that that candida is prevalent and many people have you know do do get it from time to time and we don't we don't know for sure what's going on we suspect that there's probably some variation in the normal host response. Hmm. That's very hard to pinpoint. This illustrates the other factor of, you know, the ability to dissect mechanisms from looking at rare instances, because once we identify the genetic variant, a single genetic variant, then it's sort of a, it's a soluble problem. Whereas in individuals who have subtle variations in their immune response that lead say to transient candidiasis it's very hard to work from that group to understand what's going on. But once we understand what's going on from studying the rare individuals, then we can draw some inferences about what might be going on in the more common circumstances.
0: What about the uh, the microbiome of people that have hyper-IgE? Has that been studied and what's been observed?
2: Well, it's, you know, the one of the reasons that Candida and Staph aureus, for that matter, are prevalent um, infections is that they are often part of the normal microbiome staph aureus is often a colonizer of the skin in mm. normal individuals and candida is um, is is often part of the normal microbiome as well so but it's an interesting question what might you know how might things be perturbed as a result of either a problem with TH17 cells in hyper-IgE syndrome or as a result of the excessive abundance of these two components of the microbiome Mm. and that one's a bit hard to bit hard to resolve you know which is coming first is the the other components of the microbiome being perturbed by the underlying defect or is uh, they being perturbed by the overgrowth of the staph aureus and and, uh, yeast yeah
0: okay yeah, I guess I wonder if there's not underwhelming response to candida and certain other microorganisms. I would guess that the person's microbiome has changed to a degree where, you know, maybe it's not just their their immune system alone that is fighting off candida or staph aureus, but maybe their underlying microbiome is not supportive of it for some reason. Just guessing here, but uh, just came to mind. So that's why I asked.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a reasonable postulate. And, you know, and there's, there's a lot of interest in trying to answer that question. Again, it's a very, it's quite a typical and challenging, well, you know, while it's an excellent postulate, it's quite a challenging postulate to prove.
0: Well, what seems to modulate people's response to hyper-IgE, like, you know, have people tried dietary interventions? Has that had any effect? Like, uh, you know, are certain populations seemingly uh, predisposed to it more men than women? Or, you know, what are the, the commonalities in it that's been observed?
2: In the hyper-IgE syndrome, well, you know, the it's a highly penetrant Mendelian disease. So it's largely determined by the presence or absence of this rare genetic variant. Okay.
0: Um, is there any intuition as to why it's rare? Why is it not more common? You know, why does it happen at all?
2: Any oh, idea well, because, of what, what causes it? Um, uh, well, because it's due to a single gene variant and, you know, Single gene diseases or Mendelian diseases have a similar prevalence. And that just comes down to you know the fact that fortunately DNA replication is pretty accurate. And so the acquisition of genetic variants is rare. So the is this
0: this heritable at all, or is it really more of a random? So
2: it's a it's a genetic disorder. It's a Mm. autosomal dominant genetic disorder. So it's inherited as an autosomal dominant. Uh, from one generation to the next. Now, sometimes, as with many genetic disorders, it can arise as a, a new mutation, a so-called de novo mutation. But but even then, what, you know, once it's arisen, then fifty percent of the offspring of that person uh, carry the risk of acquiring yeah. the, uh, the variant.
0: So does it tend to happen more in you know male children versus female children, and you know, is the carrier more the woman in the relationship or the man?
2: No, no, it's what's called an autosomal dominant disorder. It's on a chromosome. It's not on the X chromosome. So uh, mm. it has an equal prevalence in males and females. Oh, okay. Interesting.
0: So, I mean, what's the current research say? Like, what are the main hypotheses that people are testing to try to intervene in this condition and make
2: it better? Well, now that, you know, now that we know the the genetic variant that's responsible, we know the, the mechanism that occurs... You know progress is going to flow probably from more general progress in this group of disorders called primary immune deficiency disorders because the likely areas where we might see progress in the future is through therapy that are directed at genetic disorders And so obviously there's a lot of work going on at the moment to try and you know to consider various forms of gene therapy that might enable us to overcome single gene disorders such as this.
0: Are there different uh, types of hyper-IgE patients?
2: Yes, so it is the case that not every patient with immune deficiency and high levels of IgE carry a variant in STAT3. And so there are some, we now know of uh, several other forms of primary immune deficiency that can present with manifestations that overlap a bit with those of the hyper of, of Job syndrome. And we now know about, you know, the the genetic variants that are responsible for those as well. So about 90% now of people who present with immune deficiency and high levels of IgE can, you know, we can make a precise diagnosis in.
0: Oh, are there main types of people that have hyper IgE but different types? Or does it seem to manifest as one condition and it always has the same set
2: of, of complications to it? Well, yeah, there's some overlap, so predisposition to infection, high levels of IgE, but but there are also some differences. So one of the other hyper-IgEs arises as a result of variants in a gene called DOC8, and these people present with some additional skin infections, particularly viral infections of the skin and sometimes have more prominent vascular complications, inflammation in the blood vessels, and sometimes inflammation elsewhere in the body as well. Mm.
0: Well, very good. What do you see as coming as possible good treatments, or at least, you know, additional understandings in hyper-IgE? What's on the radar for the next few years in your observation?
2: As I said, I think that the treatments for primary immune deficiency overall will depend on us. Most of the effort is going into, one, understanding the conditions better and then once we understand them thinking about what sort of replacement or correction therapy uh, might be best now not all of those replacement or correction therapies are even feasible at the moment but that's what we're looking towards so we've discussed how sometimes we might replace the missing protein we might replace the missing cells but in the future you know perhaps we'll be able to correct the genetic defect specifically.
0: Hmm. Well, very good. Uh, Where can people find out more information about your work, Matthew? Where can they go?
2: Uh, Well, they can can see what we're doing by looking at um, the Center for Personalized, just Googling the Center for Personalized Immunology, which is our research center here in Canberra in Australia.
0: Okay. Well, very good. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh,
2: Oh, thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed the discussion.
0: Remember, before you go, supplementing with hemp CBD products is one of the best things you can do for your well-being. Get your CBD from a company that cares and offers you holistic support in your healing or wellness journey. Feel Good Hemp is giving our listeners 33% off their first purchase. You can use coupon code GENIUS33 at checkout to save 33% site-wide. Visit feelgoodhemp.org to shop now and access their free empowerment platform.